Welcome to day three of the Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon holiday extravaganza. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Author Katrina McPherson joins me to chat about her new Dandy Gilbert novel, The Mirror Dance. We cover a lot in this one. We go from creepy puppets to midsummer murders, from locked room mysteries to Stephen Sondheim to the pros and cons of dry sherry. The holidays are there too. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Boxing Day, Twelfth Night, First Footing, all that and food. So much food. Happy listening. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Author Katrina McPherson joins me in the corner today to chat about her new Dandy Gilver novel, The Mirror Dance. Welcome, Katrina. Hi, Alexia. Thanks for having me. Uh, the Mirror Dance is the 15th Dandy Gilver novel, which is awe-inspiring. So what's happening this time around? Well, yeah, yeah, I know. 15, I can't quite believe it myself. It is um, a romp. I think it's fair to say it's my, you know, that thing where Amazon categories get more and more and more fine-grained. I was thinking if I don't get to number one in the puppeteering academia publishing historical novel private detective category, then I might just drum my heels and sob. So she's um, it's set around a Punch and Judy show. It opens on a holiday bank holiday afternoon um, where the her female servants are going to watch a Punch and Judy show in a park in the city of Dundee. Um, and she is by coincidence, Dandy Gilbert is employed to go and issue a warning to the Punch and Judy man about um, copyright infringement, which doesn't sound like a great start. He has done something which I thought was quite very enterprising. As he goes around the towns, he seems to be making extra puppets for his Punch and Judy show based on local worthies or, or your prominent local people. But this time, this time, he's using characters that are the preserve or the intellectual property of a publisher of wholesome women's magazines and sister paper girls comic, the rosy cheek and the freckle. So he's got um, he's got Rosie and Freckle as puppets in his show, and Dandy's going to tell him to cut it out because that's against the law. But it, but really, um, so it's set, which it is great fun to write in a women's uh, publishing house and somewhat in St Andrews University, which is also great fun and really easy to research because that's where my editor went to college. Um, so she kept me right on all that and um, a little bit in the puppet show and also backstage in theatres, uh, which came about purely because I thought, well, where does a travelling puppeteer put his rig, you know, this tent and all these puppets when he's living in very um, straitened circumstances? He wouldn't have anywhere to keep them. So I made him have a friendship with a stage doorkeeper, which got me into the backstage of a theatre and then another theatre. And it's just... It's great fun. It was really one of those who's going to stop us books where I just had a lot of fun knocking about. But seriously, what it is, is this is a very long answer, Alexi, sorry. But what it really was, was I wanted to write a locked room mystery. Um, no. Do I mean a closed circle? No, I mean a locked room. Um, Gigi Pandian kept me straight about which was which, but it's starting to drift again. So my idea was to have 50 people in deck chairs in a park in broad daylight watching a puppet show and there's one man inside the kiosk and then the action stops and everyone's going, get on with it, what's wrong with you? 
nothing happens and someone dandy goes round the back unties this fabric tent and there is the puppeteer lying dead with his throat cut no sign of a knife and no way for a murderer to have either entered or left because everybody's watching so i thought i'll write that and then see if i can solve it so that's what took me to puppets um and then they're just gruesome aren't they puppets are just awful P P Punch and Judy, do you know the Punch and Judy show? Yeah, you know Becca, I was I was going to uh, ask you a question oh. about that because my um, say introduction and so far only experience with the Punch and Judy show are uh, the Mr. James horror story, the story of a disappearance and an appearance, and an episode of Midsummer Murders called Destroying Angel, where the um, it, it involves poisonous mushrooms and. Uh, puppeteer getting his hand chopped off among other things is that the one that's set at a, a fairground and so there's punch and judy show and a coconut shy and a carousel or is it just a punch and judy show i don't know about the carousel but i think it oh i think it's at a fair it's it's the one where the um oh no it's this one with the the inn where the uh and the there's like a fake will and uh I don't know if there's a fair one or not, but the, oh. the there's supposed to be a punch and Judy, but the uh, what do you call him? The professor doesn't show up, and uh, they go looking okay. for him, and and the dog finds just his hand. Oh, I think I, I don't think it's the same one. I should definitely watch that. Um, the reason I'm asking is if it was the one with the fairground with sort of, um, you know, a coconut shy and uh, pin the tail. We saw it being filmed. I saw it being filmed oh, wow. <laughs> in the southwest of England. I was out for lunch with these friends in this little town in, you know, that neck of the woods. And we saw what looked like a really cute old fashioned fair. Thought, oh, look at that, that looks like a lot of fun, but it seems to be closed. There's no one there. It's just this abandoned fairground and went for lunch and then saw um, Richard Breyer dressed as a vicar and thought, oh wait, they're filming something. It's not a real fairground. We're not going to get, a, you know, we're not going to get a go on that carousel. But no, I think it's a different episode. But yeah, I'm not at all surprised that Mr. James Horror was your route into Punch and Judy because it is horrific. It was, it was on its way out even when I was a wee girl. Um, I can't remember if I've ever actually seen one live. I've seen them on the telly, uh, like in you know played straight for children on children's BBC. So it's, you know, from the Commedia dell'arte, uh, pretty sure, because Mr. Punch is Punchinello and his wife, Judy, who he beats up. There's a lot of domestic violence played for laughs. And they kill their child during the, the traditional script is they, they kill the baby. And every, all these little children are like licking ice creams and laughing uproariously. Um, and there's also this character called Scaramouche, um, who is a silent puppet. And his whole shtick is he comes on, I think after the, the after the death of the child, and he's he's dark, dressed in black, and his neck is a concertina of fabric. So his neck stretches and stretches and stretches until his head disappears above the proscenium arch of the kiosk of the puppet booth. And that's his whole thing, and no one knows who he is, if he's justice or God or the devil or karma or you know, he's really creepy. Um, and that's the moment, of course, that's the moment where everything stops in my uh, in my murder mystery is when Scaramouche's head has disappeared 
and everybody's kind of unsettled anyway, and then everything just stops. But yes, it's um, I think it's lightened up now. There's a there's a dachshund and there's some sausages and a policeman, um, and I don't think Mr. Punch beats his wife with a rolling pin in modern versions. But it's an odd, it's a very odd show. Um, you know, it's a very odd tradition, as are so many. I mean, pantomime looks a bit funny if you look at it square on. But it's um, it's interesting, and that the puppets are the puppets are gruesome. The puppets are absolutely grotesque. Still, still I mean, even in their modern form, yeah. The one with like the, the big beaked noses and yeah, that kind of wicked witch of the west, you know, where the chin meets the nose kind of look, yeah, and and just puppets generally. I always try and work out what's hand puppets or string puppets or ventriloquist dummies or I don't know which one's the creepiest. Finger puppets are not that creepy because they're small, but I think all puppets are unsettling. Although ever since seeing the movie version of The Shining where the kid goes around with his finger going, red rum, I've not okay. quite looked at finger puppets the same <laughs> That's way. very true. That's very true. I think for me it's ventriloquist's ventriloquist dummies are the, are the creepiest things because they're just because they're bigger you know they're they look big enough to do some damage um yeah i don't think i could have one of them in the house i've got various clowns and dolls and things but not ventriloquist dummy yeah those have been the subject of some pretty good horror movies too i'll admit <laughs> oh yeah yeah i am and i'm up for a new one anytime anytime there's a new one yeah i'm in <laughs> now you, you also mentioned that um uh, locked room mysteries. I was going to ask about that, and obviously the answer is yes. Locked room mysteries influenced um, this current Danny Gilver. Um, you know that, and and I think it does count as locked room. It's that you know that it looks like the murderer couldn't possibly have gotten in and out unseen yeah. Yeah. Uh, to commit yeah. the murder. So, but how do you kind of take that that classic mystery theme and sort of tweak it a bit or, or play with it a bit to to make it your own and make it fresh while still you know paying tribute to the the classics of the genre. Yeah, I couldn't, I don't think I could have done it if it was just that. I think if it was, I mean, you know, people did it, Niall Marsh did it, and she just stuck her chin in the air and did it. She just interviewed witness after witness after witness and had conversation after conversation, and that was it. But I don't think I've either got the skill or the nerve to do that. So it was, so that's one strand is interviewing these uh, people, the police interviewing and then Dandy Gilbert interviewing and following the people who were watching uh, the part. And one of them's watching the, the entrance to see if her, because her friend's late and she's trying to hold a deck chair, you know, and getting filthy looks because everybody else wants to sit down. So she's watching the grassy area behind the tent. That's, but that's one part of it. But I couldn't have done it without the um, you know, the backstage and the, the publishing firm, which grow, and the academia, which grow. Because I think it's so pure, you know, it's so it's so pure and it's so clean and it's so classic that how do you, I don't know, how you would get, you know, a whole novel out of just that and still make the mystery central. It would have to be something like Busman's Honeymoon, you know, where the mystery where it's not a mystery interrupted by romance. It's a romance novel that's inter in interrupted with a bit of murder. But, um, yeah, so I did I did that because the other one that I've got coming out now, when is it coming out? First of February, actually, which is the fourth Lexi Campbell, 
is a, a closed circle, which I thought was a locked room. I was, you know, shoot my mouth off saying it's a locked room. And that was when Gigi Pandian got in touch and said, that's not, honey, that's not a locked room. That's a closed circle. Um, I'm wondering if there's going to be a lot of closed circle mysteries set in lockdown, you know, when people were shut in, because that's what that's what mine is. Um, but I, as your question, I don't I don't know how you would do it, except by distracting people with lots of other stuff as well so that it, it fades slightly into the background. And it's not the only question. I was just teaching a class, actually, um, for Grand Canyon writers, Sisters in Crime Grand Canyon writers, about clues, clues and red herrings and, and Easter eggs. And someone asked in the Q&A, how many clues do you need in a mystery novel? And I had no idea and thought, oh, that would have been, that would have been a good thing to try and work out before I taught this class. But would you, could you answer that? Not to put you on the spot or anything, ho ho, but could could you answer that if someone asked how many clues do you need? No, it probably depends on the mystery and how many murders you have and whether uh, it's something like, you know, like you said, like is it a closed circle? You've only got a certain number of people or is it one that's, you know, in the middle of Manhattan where there could be a million suspects? So there's probably not one answer other than it depends, which is always a safe uh, answer for every question you're ever asked. That's a good answer. That's a better answer than my answer, which was to know, don't know, and I should. But then I thought, well, I'm writing something right. I'm writing a first draft right now, so I'm, I started thinking, well, just just see how many actual clues. And of course, clues and red headings are exactly the same, except some of them are true and some of them aren't. So I'm thinking for um eighty thousand word modern uh, novel, five. That's my answer. At least five, because I'm hoping that this book's going to work and there are five but for the mirror dance I've got no idea I would have to I'd have to read it and make notes I can't pluck it out I couldn't say now how many there are because of that thing that I was just saying you you know the locked room mystery has to be woven in and disguised and attached and then detached from all these other strands uh, to make it you know to make it work to make the the sleight of hand work so I, I suspect that in a, in a more traditional Mystery, you probably need more clues and, and one that more focuses sort of like on the psychological yeah. aspects where you know people aren't necessarily even all that into the, the crime itself, but more of the, the motivation. Yeah. Um, but I think the next time someone asks, you should just say five and say nothing else. <laughs> I'll say five and it, it, for follow-up, I'll refer you to Alexia Gordon. There. <laughs> no, I won't do that to you. I won't do that to you. Yeah, but I had already shot myself in the foot by saying, and all this goes for obviously for a who done it, but also a how done it, a why done it, a when done it, a, you know, a, a why do it now, everything. So you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it that way. But it was a, it was a really good um, question, and I think it's, it's just you know if if it feels thin or you know if it feels crowded. I've 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 stuffed things in in a second draft. I've cut things out of a second draft, but I've never at any point counted to see how much there was that feels thin or feels bloated. But I'm, I will now, for sure. Yeah, you can see your tick marks as you're ticking off the number of clues yeah. in your next <laughs> Fine. And then if there's only four, I'll think, God, I hope it's okay. Throw another red herring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, getting back to uh, uh, 
the mirror dance of the 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 unknown number of clues. Um, you did you did mention that it was set at uh, the August bank holiday, and for those of us who are Americans and um, have no clue what a bank holiday is, what's a bank holiday? <laughs> All right. Well, this I was thinking about. I just wrote a blog about this actually, about what American American people and UK people think of each other's holidays. Because when I said August Bank, it opens on August Bank. A friend said on Twitter, "Hey, didn't August Bank win the Tony last year? <laughs> win a Tony last year?" Which I thought was really funny because it does sound like the kind of guy um, who would win a Tony award. And you have to stop now and say, "Rest in peace, Stephen Sondheim." Oh, yes. oh. um, I didn't know he was so. El, well, you know, 91, he, he's not been snatched away from us, you know, before his time. But but you know what? Um, we could have done with him for a bit longer. Um, what is August Bank? So, the, so they're called bank holidays because back in the day, the banks always closed. But maybe people who worked in shops didn't get the day off because lots of people wanted to go shopping on their holiday. So they're still called bank holidays because the banks are closed, uh, but not just the banks are closed. And they're always on Monday. Um, so it's just a it's just a workers holiday in the in the middle of August um, with not tied to anything particular. So most so most of them are tied to, you know, the Christian festivals um, in Britain and New Year. Um, and that's about it, I think, for actual days off work, because one of the well, another main thing between difference between UK and US holidays is you use the, the word holiday just to mean like in its old sense, you know, a celebratory day, a red ribbon day. So Valentine's Day is a holiday and Halloween's a holiday. And I was thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense because you don't get time off work. That's not my idea of a holiday. But yeah, it opens on it opens on August Bank when when the servants are all released for the day to go and sit in the park in Dundee. I have learned how to tell the difference between Labour Day and Memorial Day, which has been confusing me for 11 years. Someone just clued me in. Um, I now know that Memorial Day is in the spring and Labour Day is at the end of the summer. I'm very pleased <laughs> because and how it was was a simple mnemonic. They they said memorial to labour is a well-turned phrase. You could have a memorial to labour, but labour to memorial is not grammatical. And I thought, oh, what a great writerly way to learn which one's which. Um, you'd have to say labor to memorialize which is an ugly phrase but but memorial to labor means something so now i know i've never known before which i've never which? heard that mnemonic before i mean the mnemonic i grew up with um and i fully admit this is because my mother is from south carolina is you don't wear white before memorial day and you don't wear it after labor day and that's yeah. just like ingrained <laughs> I knew that my UK correspondent for the meaning of US holidays said about Labour Day, no clue except something with gloves. That was her answer. That was what she understood about Labour Day. <laughs> no. And it's it's white gloves after Labour Day, is it? Don't wear white gloves after Labour Day? Don't wear white shoes, don't wear white clothes. All it's, right. it's, it's kind of the, it's, it's the unofficial end of summer and Memorial Day is the unofficial beginning of summer. And I'm sure it has something to do with you know, hot, sticky, pre-air-conditioned days and yeah. white clothing. And I'm sure there's some backstory and a lot of it's probably really ugly, but right now it's, um, and, and yeah. I know fashion rules are changing, but we were, we still were always grew up with no white before Memorial Day and no white after Labor Day. I always find that really, I mean, 
it it took me quite a long time before I stopped taking a cardigan or an umbrella with me when I went out in California, even though it wasn't going to rain for three months. And I knew that. But there's a sort of, well, there was a kind of old lady when I was younger, but now they're going to be gone because I'm going to be the old lady, right? And I'm not going to start doing it. Who would wear exactly the same number of clothes, summer and winter, but in lighter colours, you know, like still wear a, a cosy jersey, but it's pale yellow. So so it's summertime. Or I still still take a coat with you, but you, this coat is cream coloured. It's not navy blue. So that means it's summertime. It, they were just... You know, and still, and you could see the straps of the, um, well, what I would call a vest, but you call an undershirt and a, a long underskirt with straps and a top as well, and a shirt, and then a, this cardigan and a coat over the arm. You think it? Well, it, I know it's Scotland, but it's August. You must be boiling. <laughs> so there was a vestige of that um, light-coloured clothing thing. But okay, I don't have anything white on today in november few of course the complicated there's also winter white which is actually ivory you're actually allowed to wear that during the winter oh okay (laughs) oh yeah fashion is weird but it's kind of fun (laughs) i don't think there are any rules here in california i've never i mean i've been to a wed weddings where no one had to tie on i've been to funerals where no one had to tie on i cannot imagine ever coming up against a dress. I mean, sort of things like you can't wear motorcycle colours, you know, to the opera. But I just don't, dress codes just don't seem to be, you know, a thing. I remember asking Simon Wood, um, would it be okay to wear flip-flops to something? And he said, it'd be okay to wear flip-flops and board shorts, Katrina. You're in California now. <laughs> there's no, there's never a question. <laughs> I think that's that's spreading eastward some, and, and it's generational. It's the the folks who are significantly older than me, um, and I'm 52, uh, would still look at you funny if you you know showed up um, at the the opera in flip flops. But um, people my age yeah. and younger are like, hey, at least you showed up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel a bit sorry for people at the theater when they're wearing the kind of clubber they've been wearing to the theatre their whole lives. And then people are, you know, rocking up in in hoodies and scruffy jeans and, and things like that. I think, oh, we're spoiling it. We are. I mean, I try a middle ground because you think we're we're spoiling their Edinburgh doesn't happen in Edinburgh. And not in the front the Edinburgh Festival, there is a there is a look that I always joked people get their clothes to wear to the theatre at the Edinburgh Festival Theatre Outfitters because they all look exactly the same. They look exactly the same and you never see these clothes in shops. Don't know where they get them. And I don't I don't think that's changing significantly. But yeah, it's different in California. And speaking of things being a little different in California, I'm guessing that Christmas in California is different than Christmas in Scotland, or at least how it's celebrated. Um well not in my house because what I do <laughs> It's really um, have got the I've got it down to a fine art that it is not any it's not California from the weekend before Christmas. So it'll be about Friday, the 17th of December until January the 6th. It is no longer California inside my house. And we just do everything the same way that we've always done it. 
um, in terms of what we eat and what we do and when we do it and the traditions. And the, the hardest thing is getting uh, what you would call a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. So getting a spindly, airy, I would call ethereal, airy, elegant Christmas tree that hasn't been um, pruned so that it's turned into, a, you know, like one of those platonic geometric shapes, like really, really bushy. Uh, so we've got this one place where we can go and they just let them grow and you cut them down yourself and they're beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Everybody else thinks it's funny um, because it's it's bare and spindly and the ornaments hang instead of being draped onto this um, cylinder, not cylinder, what cone, you know, that shape. Yeah. I don't want to say anything because I know that that's, that's your idea of a beautiful Christmas tree. But the first year I thought, oh, no, 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 I can't be doing this. I've got to have something that looks like, you know, looks like maybe you, it was the last one available and you had to take it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there are, of course, there are differences. I, I still think it's strange that Christmas tastes like peppermint here. That's like, why, what's celebratory about mints? They help you with indigestion. I don't get that at all. Um, and bark, why, why is it good if chocolate's thin? get a grip you want a good lump of chocolate um and i buy mince pies at eight dollars for six uh from that what's it called cost plus world market walkers uh, <laughs> walkers mince pies and then all my friends at home go oh we got one we we got them for 99 pence and we got 12 because buy one get one free ha ha but never mind <laughs> never mind i don't think i i don't think i've got any new uh, new traditions for Christmas. It's one of the most conservative. You know, if you celebrate Christmas, it it would take a lot to make you change what you do just because you're in a different place, right? Um, That's true. Yeah. No, I don't think I don't think there's anything. Oh well, when we, we won't be doing it this year, but we we sometimes have a, a Boxing Day Boxing Day party, which means it's after the day after the day after Christmas, and I'll do both. Uh, you know, mimosas and uh, tacos and sherry and mince pies. Because you can't really say sherry and mince pies and expect people to choke them down. You know, there's a lot of people who've never had a glass of sherry in their life. My mum, actually, when we were all in uh, Monterey for Left Coast Crime, my mum went into the hotel bar and asked for a dry sherry. And the, <laughs> the bartender just said, what? <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> But do you, do you, I mean, I know you're not a hibernophile rather than an anglophile, or a, uh, but have you, do you eat mince pies? I don't think I've ever had a mince pie. I have had sherry, um, okay. both dry and sweet. Actually, uh, for, I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, which is kind of Anglican. Um, and we often, meaning the church often uses uh, cream sherry as our communion wine. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Yeah, but, um, I know. <laughs> I think dry sherry is just because life doesn't have to be fun. I, I mean, it's, you know, that thing where sweet, sweet wine is frowned upon and the drier, the better. And, you know, it's, a, it's not quite macho, but it's sort of elitist. And I think, oh, there's nothing like sweet sherry. <laughs> I bet if people were on their own and no one was watching, no one would drink dry sherry. Everyone would go, oh, yummy, sweet sherry. Yes, please. So... That's that's just what I think. So I, I recently discovered that dry sherry pairs very well with spicy food. 
um, Chantal Singh, who's a, a DC area bartender. Um, she's also a, a legit thing called a sherry ambassador. Um, so she's sort of a sherry specialist. Um, and we sherry week was at the beginning of this month. And so they went through the whole spectrum of sherries. And so I tried a dry one first time and paired it with something really spicy. And it actually worked really oh. well. I've never thought of sherry as something to, to drink while eating something. Apart from, you know, like just little nibbles. Because uh, sherry is like 11 o'clock in the morning drink for me. Um, but not every morning, you know, just like Christmas Day and things like that. Yeah. And it's very cold as well, because I think something British people get wrong is they don't chill things that are better cold. So dry sherry, if it's really cold, is lovely. But dry sherry, if it's room temperature, black. Or did you did you have it chilled? Yes, it was chilled. They, oh, yeah, every, yeah. Everything okay. I looked at said served chilled, like in capital yeah. letters. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I, I did sip a little bit at room temperature to see what it was like. And no, it was it, it was not fun, as you said. But no. chilled with some spicy food was it was actually, that sounds it was actually pretty good. I'm, tr- I'm still desperately trying to think of something. There must be something that I've started doing at Christmas since I moved to California, but I I, I feel very ungrateful. But, I mean, I've taken to other things. Thanksgiving, I've taken to Thanksgiving with gusto. You know, when I go to the 4th of July, even though we lost that one. So I think it's just, just Christmas that stays as it, you know, as it always was. And Burns Night, of course. But How about what you do differently than your than your neighbours who maybe are you know, Southern California natives say and never, oh, they never yeah. seen snow. Well, one thing that we do differently from pretty much everyone else is keep the Christmas tree up until 12th night. And I get really, I get very exercised <laughs> by until after 12th night. So it, so it's up on 12th night and then the morning of Epiphany, 6th of January, the lights, the twinkly lights don't go on and everything gets cleared away. And so when I see people like chucking their Christmas tree out on Boxing Day or like saying, oh, we, well, we go to a party, like real parasites. I go to a party on New Year's Eve, um, which I presume will be on this year because it's outside where everybody brings their Christmas trees and there's a big bonfire. And I'm half scandalised because it's too early to take your Christmas tree down. But also it's lovely and it smells fantastic. And I go <laughs> go along, but they don't get my Christmas tree because it's got it's still got a week to go, <laughs> you know. So that's that's something that's very different, you know, like the idea that Christmas starts so early, but then bang, finishes the day after. As soon as you've opened your presents, it's all over. There's there's that. Yeah. Isn't that kind of a season, right? It's, it's the 12 days of Christmas really is actually yeah. 12 days on the church calendar with, like you said, ends on Epiphany or Twelfth Night. And yeah, um, you're right, that is something that most Americans um, don't observe. Um like, yeah, I'm, I'm Episcopalian, so yeah, we we pay attention to it, but a lot don't, which kind of seems sad because it's eleven more chances to have parties. Exactly. I mean, who wants to hurry into January? January's no, you know. I mean, once the New Year's Eve's over, January's kind of no fun. So yeah, six of six of January. That was always the way. So the my, the Scottish saying is back to old clays and porridge. You know, back to old clothes and porridge. So on the 6th of January, whether the Christmas cake is finished or not, whether the New Year's shortbread is finished or not, it gets put away. And the bottle of whiskey and bottle of sherry that have been sitting out for anyone that comes to your door get put away and it's over and you're back and you're back to normal. Um, 
because there's the in Scotland the New Year is a bigger was traditionally a bigger holiday than Christmas. It was a much bigger deal, um, and it was mostly alcohol related. To be honest, I mean some other traditions as well, like first footing, but there was alcohol involved in that. So so going being the first person to go into someone's house after midnight um, on the first of January that was weird. When the first year that I was here. Um, I went to a party at New Year's on New Year's Eve and it was really strange that people were leaving at 11 o'clock and going home. We were thinking, that's odd, how you cannot leave before midnight, that's the law. And then, so we left about half past 12 and came, went to drive home and there was no one out. There were no, the, the streets were quiet. And I was thinking, this is, this is so weird because the, the streets should be thronged with people visiting each other, you know, crisscrossing the roads and going to each other's houses and taking coal or a log and uh, food and booze uh, to, to be the first foot over the door. And, and that would go on until it was light, um, the first footing. It was, it, that was when, one of the times that I thought, wow, I really have come to live somewhere quite different because there's no one there's no one about you know and and we had set off from the party to go and visit another friend to say happy new year and then thought well, we probably better not because it's quarter to one in the morning and maybe they'd think that was weird <laughs> and they would have i found out yeah they would have thought that we were burglars i think and what what else besides uh mince pies uh might be different i mean how about fruitcake is is the, well, is the you know, concept of American fruitcake even close have, to... Uh... Have at it. You know, this is this is so strange to find out that Christmas cake, as I would call it, or fruitcake, is the comedy food, that, that it's funny. This was completely new. I mean, everybody knows some of the things, you know, about Ameri American life being different, but some of the things, you know, they're different, like, you know, like guest tiles and half and half, you know, what? Um, and the idea that Christmas cake is the fun, is the comedy food, because for us, Brussels sprouts are the comedy food. They are the food that all the jokes are about. And Christmas cake is just delicious. So I've never had American fruit cake. I have seen it. And so I do, I can understand why it's not revered, maybe. Because it didn't, the one that I saw didn't look good. It didn't look rich enough. It looked kind of beige. Um, so I love it. Yeah, I make Christmas cake and uh, eat it with slices of uh, really strong cheddar, which is a delicious way to, it's a Yorkshire tradition, but it's a delicious way to enjoy Christmas cake. But I've never, and I've set it out for friends and had them go, oh, ha, ha, ha. And then usually... They have a slice and go grudgingly, yeah, that's okay. But then I think, well, I don't want you to eat it if you think it's just okay, because I am quite capable of eating that entire cake. So, yeah, I make Christmas cake. I make um, buy mince pies because they're such a faff. Um, shortbread, um, black bun my mum usually makes, which is basically Christmas cake, but all the fruit's in the middle and it's got pastry case on the outside. It's identical ingredients except it's all the boozy fruit just packed inside. It sounds like a big mince pie. Um, and I think that's just about it. I'll tell you what my main, I've never been able to sell this to any American friend or make anyone else eat it, which is uh, cold turkey jelly on buttered toast. 
for breakfast after after you've cooked a turkey and your face just I know this is going out as just sound but Alexia and I are looking at each other and that was not a smile that was not a face that said yum I'll tell you, you that's my right up until jelly the cold yeah. turkey and buttered bread was fine with the jelly part jelly so gel you know jellies you know like yeah, meat jelly is quite a big thing in British cuisine. And if you get a good enough turkey, you know, like a, a, a good turkey, they're eye-wateringly expensive, that's lived a good life and used its joints and things, you can, sorry, vegetarians, um, then the the juices that drip out of it set solid and you can turn them out, you know, like a Victorian aspic mould. Um, and instead of wasting them by putting flour in them and, and making them into gravy, I just pour meat juices onto the hot turkey for Christmas dinner and then let it set and chop it onto buttered toast with salt and pepper the next day. I am making myself feel hungry. I absolutely love it, but I have never managed to get an American person to try it. In fact, a related story is I pitched um, a, the va- pork pie a la Val McDermott to the Mystery Writers of America cookbook but one of the ingredients was pig's trotters to make the jelly and they couldn't say no loud enough you know they, ba- they barely had to email from New York they just shouted so loud I could hear them they were not the least bit interested in any recipe that A took three days and B had pig's feet jelly in it uh-uh even though I had it had such provenance because I had made it fall for Val McDermott because she did me a favour, one Harrogate when she was on the, the board of the Harrogate Crime Festival. And I took it to Harrogate and gave it to her. Um, so to me, that was a recipe that was had a second to none mystery community provenance. But no, they weren't having any of it. I am I, used to kind of scraping the jelly off the cold meat and then heating it so it goes back to juice because the juice is it's it's tasty i just don't want it cold and jelly gelatin like yeah i mean i'm not a hardcore because i know that some that some japanese cuisine and they really revere um you know gelatinous textures and slippery textures and what you know what people call okra like in other words, slime. Yeah, okay, you I can't, really. That's there's some Japanese cuisine that's right onto the slimy side that I think. Uh, no, I'm out. I'm sorry. I'm out. Can't. I can't. I can't do it. But jelly, yes, please. Yeah, the okra is another one. I, I could eat okra in gumbo. I could eat it fried, but just boiled. I can't. That slimy texture. It's oh, just not. So right, there's something about gelatin and, and slime that I can't. And the pallies as well, you know, cactus paddles have got yeah, extreme okra like they've got okra like qualities. I could probably eat them, you know, if they were in panko with garlic flakes and black pepper and salt and fried. But then I think that's probably true of anything. It wouldn't actually matter what was inside that; it would be fine. But how how would um and. I actually haven't forgotten about your book, I promise. <laughs> oh, no, okay, no, that's fine. Let's talk about food. <laughs> but how, how would how would Dandy celebrate Christmas back in 1938? The same same way? Um, or? Yeah, I have written her Christmas, actually. And it's quite, oh, now which book would that? So this would be book number three, way back then, The Winterground. She was at home. There was a circus overwintering in the grounds of her house. And Christmas, um, was 
a little bit restrained, you know, not enough gluttony. There's the upper classes then, certainly now, you know, apart from the wild ones that are off their heads on Coke all the time, not Coca-Cola, I mean, other, they're really real Coke. Um, you know, a little bit too much restraint for me. So a few slices of pink goose and some, you know, gratin dauphinoise or something and not a heap of uh, turkey and things like that. And a, a little a ripple of applause when you set fire to the pudding and then some parlour games. Um, so I think, I don't think there would be as much feasting, but it would be similar. So it would be goose, not turkey. Um, there would be probably Christmas presents in the evening um, after dinner, which is just wild to think of making little kids do that, like not get up in the morning and open all the presents. But to me, that's that's still the mark of really posh people that they open their presents late in the day, you know, after church and after lunch and don't just like pelt downstairs and rip all the paper off everything like, like the likes of me would do. Um, and I think probably um, more church than lots of people now. Although lots of, I mean, lots of British people, I, when you were saying that about Twelfth Night because you're Episcopalian, I think that's another big difference between Britain and America is that Christmas in Britain is so much more cultural than it is a religious festival, which is not to say that it's not a religious festival, but it means that people who are not in any way, shape or form Christians it, celebrate Christmas. Um, it's just one of those weird things because it's a country with a state religion but with fewer actual religious people. So, you know, there's lots of little Jewish and Muslim kids in the nativity, you know, playing Joseph and playing the shepherds and nobody really, it's just kind of one of those, I'm getting into shaky ground here, but it's much more kind of here are the stories of our culture rather than, you know, this is a religious festival. So wait a minute, where was I going with that? But for Dandy back then, and in much the same vein, she would be there at the watch night service, which is what the Church of Scotland would call the midnight mass. And then she would be there, um, you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning. And then she would be there again on Boxing Day. But not because of her, you know, personal beliefs, but because she's the leader of the county, like she lives in the big house and you've got to show, you've got to do the right thing. Um, she would definitely... She would definitely do that. And I think there would be definitely be largesse as well, like the giving out of presents to her tenants. That's I know that still goes on because when I lived in Scotland, the last place I lived before we moved here was a shepherd's house on a country estate. A lovely house. I absolutely loved it um, for a peppercorn rent. Um, and on Christmas Eve, Cathy, who was the wife of Richard, who owned the estate, so the lady from the big house, came to our house and gave us a present. <laughs> it was like it was like living in the olden days. <laughs> and at first, the first year, I got really flustered because I thought, "Oh God, I didn't know we were exchanging presents, and I didn't have anything for her." And then realised that this wasn't reciprocal. This was the lady from the big house coming and giving us um, Kath Kidston oven mitts actually really nice present and one year a humongous panettone in a beautiful tin which I've still got still got my Christmas tree lights in it so definitely then because still now there's that kind of like feed the poor thing at Christmas time speaking of, of which does Boxing Day have anything to do with um what ex 
what's Boxing Day? I'll just, I'll just ask. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, I know. My American informant, when, when we were doing this holidays in the two countries, was like, like bo- boxing? Does everybody box? Do little old ladies box? What? <laughs> um, I think what it is, is that it was the day that people gave arms so that gave out Christmas boxes, because I would still call what the tip, I suppose, that I give to the bin men, the garbage guys, right? Uh, I would say that's the Christmas box. And the like, mm-hmm. who else come? Like the guy that delivers the newspaper, uh, the Christmas, it's your Christmas box, even though it's just money in a card. So I think Boxing Day is when people gave out the Christmas boxes to the needy, like the, the bin men. I don't think our garbage guys are needy particularly, but, you know, why not to say thanks for um, thanks for waiting while I run down the drive in my pyjamas with the wheelie bin half the time. So I think I think that's what it is. Nothing to do with boxing and nothing to do with putting out nothing to do with putting out all the rubbish, like all the boxes that your that your eye players came in. I'm pretty sure that's what Boxing Day is. Oh, maybe because once upon a time, alms were put in actual boxes, maybe? Actual boxes, yeah, because it would be it would be food and, you know, socks and things like that rather than money, yeah. Okay, so now this is, this is the definitive definition. So anyone asks me, I want to say, well, Katrina McPherson says this is what Boxing Day is. I think so, and I think so. You can say, well, she is a, she is a trained linguist, and the, the things that you give to people who've done service to you are called their Christmas box. So I think that's what Boxing Day is. I'm, I'm busy thinking of like uh, Boxing Days and um, uh, was it First Footy, all these differences for what's kind of actually the same holiday. It's just so yeah. parts that people focus on depending on where you are and your cultural traditions is just um, very, very different. <laughs> Very different. One of a thing, a funny thing that's happened in this a different holiday with Halloween is Halloween was always a big holiday in Scotland and not in England for some reason. So I was brought up on Halloween, um, and then Halloween, obviously a huge holiday in America, and I'm guessing that partly as well as the um, Spanish influence from uh, from Mexico and from South and Central America that some of the Halloween was because so many people came from Scotland and from the North and from Ireland rather than from England because they were poor countries and people wanted to emigrate. So, but what's happened now is because Americans are so fantastic at at, uh, Halloween and it's great, is it's gone to England and American Halloween is starting to creep up from England into Scotland and, oh, they don't like that. Oh, they don't like that at all. So the differences there are we would carve what you would call rutabagas, Swedish turnips, to make lanterns, which is really hard. I mean, you it's hard work and pretty dangerous, actually, carving into a rutabaga. And pumpkins are a better idea because they're easier and they're softer and it doesn't take three days. But there's a lot of older Scottish people who are really disapproving of Scottish children carving pumpkins because they're not native and it's not right. And also guising was what we did it's the same as trick-or-treating. So you get you get gussied up in a disguise, it's called guising, and go around the neighbours, but you have to uh, sing a song or do a dance or recite a poem to get your sweets. And trick-or-treating, you don't have to do anything. So there's a lot of disapproval in Scotland now because of this. It went from Scotland to America, it changed, it came back to England and it's coming north again. Kids think they're going to get chocolate for doing nothing. 
you know, and I know that quite a lot of Scottish people my age and older are saying, no, you've got to do something and you can't tell a joke because that's not embarrassing enough. You've got to sing or dance or recite poetry. Hop to it. <laughs> so there's a bit of a culture war. <laughs> there's a bit of a culture war going on at the moment. Personally, I would never make a child carve a turnip because I don't know how any Scottish children have got 10 fingers. They're so hard. And you never got to use a good knife because your mum didn't want you blunting the good knives. You always got some mad old blunt round ended kitchen knife that didn't have a handle anymore. It just had a spike. And the reason you were allowed to use it was it was knackered. So <laughs> I wouldn't have kids do that, but I would make them sing and dance for the for the chocolate. Definitely. For sure. Here we think of you know, performing in exchange for something is more of a, a wassail tradition or or my, my dad when he was a kid they actually had something called Christmas Give where they did that at Christmas time. Oh, yeah. Um whereas Halloween it's actually a threat. You know, trick or treat means give me the candy or I will do something terrible to or you. Or else yeah. So it's that's that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Wassailing is completely foreign to me because it's from so far in the south of England that it you know I never didn't know what it was until I was a grown up. Yeah, <laughs> but but American American Halloween is fantastic. I love it, and it's so quick to decorate for Halloween because everything just goes on the step. For me, everything goes on the step. It's one box. It takes ten minutes, and then it takes ten minutes to take down. Whereas Christmas decoration, whole weekend, and then it takes forever to take down. So, I'm a big fan of uh, American Halloween. Now, one of one of your last ditch mysteries was open on Halloween, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. So, you, so you've done Halloween, Fourth of July. Um, are you going to do a last ditch Christmas? Definitely, I have done. So the first one was Fourth of July. The second one was Halloween. The third one was Valentine's Day. It opened on Valentine's Day. The fourth one, which comes out in February, is called Scott Mist, and it opens on the anti-holiday. It opens on Friday the thirteenth of March 2020, when California closed down, when Gav the Gov closed the schools. And I think it was the day or it was the day after they had closed Disneyland and said there was a tax extension. So it was when stuff was getting very real. So it's the it's the it's the exception. So it starts on the least the day that was least like a holiday of any day in recent memory. But then book five which I'm writing right now opens on the morning of Thanksgiving in the kitchen on the fourth Thursday in November when Lexi Campbell is surveying and this is Lexi Campbell this is not me I mean I know I say that a lot I don't think this that's Lexi but this is Lexi I love Thanksgiving dinner but she's aghast at what's available for for Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner just the quantities of Thanksgiving dinner and the amount of sugar because it is quite a lot of sweetness for a main course, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, the cranberry sauce and the, the sweet rolls and the, the marshmallows, God knows, the marshmallows. And then the kind of orange that's in the stuffing. It, it, it is sweeter than most dinners that I was raised on. But, oh, it's so good. But Lexi's point is looking around the kitchen. Look, if we're going to have jam and we're supposed to call it sauce, and if we're going to have maple syrup in the stuffing and if we're going to have, you know, cake, and I know you're calling it bread, but if we're going to have cake for dinner, maybe I'll slice some pears for pudding, you know, for dessert. 
because I'm looking around it, there's eight pies in this kitchen. And I think maybe somebody would want some fruit. And of course, this is heresy. And she's she's a bad, ungrateful immigrant who doesn't deserve to be there uh, because and she's not thankful at all because saying that you want some fruit instead of eight pies after your huge meal is really really just kicking America in the teeth and I I, I do actually agree I'm slightly concerned that I'm going to get letters because people do have you know I mean who can blame them they do have trouble distinguishing me Scott in California from Lexi Campbell, Scott in California, we're not we're not the same person. We're not the same person. I had three kinds of pie um, after dinner last Thursday, and then I had some for breakfast, as God intended. Right? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with pie for breakfast. Exactly. I was a bit shocked when someone said there's nothing wrong with having pie for breakfast on Thanksgiving Day. That means you've cut into your pie before dinner. That feels wrong. I do believe in delayed gratification, but the day after, for sure. Yeah, I had blackberry and apple um, cinnamon crumble with sweetened vanilla cream for breakfast the next day, and I don't care. Mm. That was delicious, actually. It was. I know it's not It's not very um, canonical, is it, to have a fruit crumble, but... Uh, okay, here's one thing I do have to say is I can't stand pumpkin pie. I made it. I made a big pumpkin pie for American friends and a little personal pumpkin pie for someone who couldn't make it uh, to the dinner. I made it and they said it was nice and I tasted it to check that it was all right. But I think, I think like pig's foot jelly, you maybe have to be raised on it. It's a very special texture, isn't it? Yeah, I think even raised on it is because there's some people, it's kind of a love it or hate it. And even people from here don't necessarily like pumpkin pie yeah. um and there's definitely yeah. a difference between sweet potato pie and pumpkin pie and the never the twain shall meet um so some of us that regional who, probably um yeah. i i grew up with sweet potato pie and actually everybody in my family can't stand pumpkin pie and the further north more, more north than west it was more pumpkin pie and you couldn't really find sweet potato pie so i think it's a regional food yeah. um and so it's but it's kind of one of those love hate foods like fruitcake for example and some people love it some people hate it <laughs> I, got, I was buying so I just use a tin of Libby's pumpkin and you know and I've joined I'm, I'm pretty well assimilated because I can now go why do they tell you to check after 40 minutes it takes at least an hour and 10 minutes why do they pretend this pie is going to be ready after 40 minutes they lie on that label but so I was buying my Libby's pumpkin and it was going through the um, till at the supermarket and the guy who was putting it through saying oh you're making the pies because i bought a big bag of pecans as well pecans pecan nuts as well and i said yeah i'm making the pies and so we started talking about food um and he said something about what you know what sides are you going to have and i said oh well there's going to be mushroom casserole and there's going to be green beans and he said oh you've got no one to make um no one to make collard greens, eh? And no mac, no mac and cheese. And I said, no, it's all very, it's all very northern. It's all very west coast. It's all very Californian. There won't be any collard greens. There won't be any mac and cheese. And he said, have you ever had collard greens? And I said, yes, I have. I've never made them, but I do have a good recipe to um to um. Now I'm going to, to season the pot. And this guy went like he said like went like staggered back and said, oh, you know about seasoning? Where did you learn about seasoning the pot? And I said in savannah and he went 
okay. And we just had a moment, <laughs> you know, we just had a little moment. Like, here I am, you know, talking like I talk, looking like I look, living in California, but I have eaten collard greens from a seasoned pot in Savannah, Georgia. So I got just a, just a slight incline of his head <laughs> it was a nice it was a nice moment because he was obviously thinking you know he's he's working in California he's far from home he's obviously from down there somewhere down there you know what I mean it's a long way away but he was looking forward to and his Thanksgiving dinner sounded fantastic I've got to say which was deep fried turkey and uh, and mac and cheese and collard greens and as far as I can work out like three or four different kinds of potato it sounded pretty good Hey, what, sweet potato, casserole, mashed potatoes. Point two. I wonder what the other one. There was something. There was some. Oh, maybe it was sweet potatoes. There was. Ma- there were definitely mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes and some other kind of. He was doing some other kind of potato as well. Home fries. Home oh, fries. Okay. okay. Yeah. The, the, the giant size French fries. Yeah, like like little herby cubed. Uh, yeah, we're you know we're talking about food again, Alexia. What was the que- <laughs> What was the question? <laughs> Um, I, it was the question about if you're going to do a last ditch Christmas mystery. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yes. Do you know what? It just occurred to me because I'm doing NaNoWriMo and I'm, I've got two days to go and I'm on 46,000 words. I'm going to make it. Yay. Yay. And yeah. And then I've got three weeks to write the other 30,000. But, we, you know, that's OK. I've done it before. I did it last year. Um, yes. But the thing is, starting a book on the day of Thanksgiving and then it carries on, I am starting to bleed into the Christmas season already. So even as I'm writing, and I'm quite a pantser, I'm thinking, oh man, I'm using a lot of Christmas material um, in what I'm writing and I'll have to make sure and not. I was wondering, you know Richard Osman, who wrote The Thursday Murder Club and then The Man Who Died Twice, he starts his second book the next Thursday after the ending of the first book which I think is really smart because I'm using up too much time. So that my books went July, Halloween, Valentine's Day, then March. That was really quick. But now we're away in November. So I'm thinking maybe I could just if write the next one. And there is a next one because it's under contract already. It's only going to be a couple of weeks after the first one. And the next one can be Christmas. Or I'd have to like zoop through to Easter and then we're going to go through another year. Um. I don't know. I'll decide. But yeah, for definite, because it's my favourite. It is my absolute hands down favourite holiday uh, Christmas. So I've got to write. I've got to write a Christmas one. Yes, and you, you can write. You can always set it in the actual Christmas season and then school us all on Epiphany and the proper way to celebrate. What a brilliant idea. Start it like this. Start and do, like have the run up to Christmas in this, which is actually a Thanksgiving book, but then have the Christmas book start on you know Christmas Eve. Um, as the donkeys are kneeling, but we've got we've got donkeys in a field here actually. But do you know that that tradition? You know that story about that you should never look at a donkey at midnight on Christmas Eve because they kneel because they no, kneel I've at midnight. They kneel at midnight on Christmas never Eve. Heard that? And they, they're so. supposed to, you're supposed to let them kneel in private. You're supposed to okay. not. That. It's like it's like going to sleep when Santa comes. You can't oh, see Santa coming. All right. So you're not supposed to look at you're not supposed to look at donkeys at midnight on Christmas Eve because they will kneel in um, in honour of the birth. Um, and we have actually this makes me sound like such a sap. We have actually driven home um, really late on Christmas Eve after a party, and it did cross my mind. Oh man, what if those donkeys are in that field? I just have to. I'll just look down. 
but I'm driving, so I can't look down. So I'll just, it's a very quiet road. I'll just kind of look to the side and make sure I don't look at these donkeys because I don't want to, I don't want to see what they're doing. <laughs> that would be definitely, do you know what? That would be a good clue, wouldn't it? Like why someone didn't see Lexi Campbell. I'm thinking why Lexi Campbell didn't see something at midnight on Christmas Eve because she was avoiding. Was not like you drove right past. How did you not see this? Because like I was, not... was right behind those donkeys. Exactly. And because I wasn't looking at the donkeys, I'm not a savage. <laughs> the donkey witnessed the murder. Why didn't you? <laughs> no, I need to, Alexia, I seriously need to write that down because my brain won't hold it. Donkeys. How much do you have to write down to remember it? Uh, right, donkeys, donkeys at midnight. Donkeys, donkeys at midnight. Witness fail. Here you go. Yeah. You can work. also listen to the podcast because I'm not cutting that oh, out. Oh yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Oh gosh, that's this is this is what happens. See, I'm talking to you like as a friend, and I don't usually talk about works in progress at all. And I've just said, Oh, here's something I could do on chapter one of the next book that I haven't even started yet. Never mind. I'll just, I'll set it. I'll put it out of my mind. And if someone thinks that's a good idea and writes it, we've got this as evidence that I said it first. Right. Yes, Not absolutely. that any of your podcast listeners would do anything so nefarious. I'm sure. No, they wouldn't. Especially no, they wouldn't. since they probably were like me and grew up in a suburb or a city where you're literally never going to see a donkey. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's kind of well, I drove home the other day and it was honestly like being in a Disney film. There was a jack, there was a jackrabbit. What 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 was it? Oh, there was a jackrabbit, there was an otter in the canal, and there was a there was a jackrabbit, and there was a eagle on a fence, and then the squirrels were just crossing the road, like little ground squirrels like this. And I thought it honestly is there should be just bluebirds holding up a ribbon, and this would be complete. It's nice. It is nice, apart from the herons, because we've got fish, but oh. fish can, the fish can... No, they're fine. The fish can hide. They've got plenty of hidey holes, so... But I've got <laughs> to admit, nice, actually. I, do, I do run across the field and wave my hands if I see a heron, and they do go away, because I think, uh, you don't... You know, there's a big canal, you can, and there's a f- big pond full of frogs. You do not need to be eating koi carp out of our little pond. Yeah, I know, it sounds, it sounds idyllic, and it, it is once fire season's over. Although I... I confess I'm a city type and well, that's, I love hearing people's stories about their, their beautiful homes in rural areas. Um, If I went like, you know, a week without being able to do the DoorDash thing, I'd probably lose my mind. So, (laughs) Well, it's like, yeah, it's like when, if you, when the cows burst out, like when, when cows burst out, you can tell if someone thinks that a cow is a big scary animal or, or if they think, Oh hell, the cows are out, and just go and chase them back in. You know, and I'm not—I'm not a country person. I come from a small town in the suburb, well, sort of in the outskirts of Edinburgh. But I've lived in the country since 1996, uh, with a lot of cows that bust out a lot um, of dry stone walls. So I'm used to it now. My, my mom grew up on a farm with cows, and one of them. I guess got loose and, and like terrorized her. So she's never thought fondly of cows. So I've only heard bad stories they're, about cows. They're very big. You know, when they're when you're standing right beside them, they are sizable. Because they've got they're in I've got a meditation chair down at the end of the field, my our field, and the cows come in and out to eat the grass so we don't have to cut it. But when you're and they're, you know, they don't really bother you much, but when you're sitting still meditating and they, they lumber up. 
you can suddenly open your eyes and there's a the side of a cow right in front of your face. And I think, well, I'm, I'm basically trapped now, unless I climb over a fence. And it feels little, and I think this was a particularly mean cow. So, um, yeah, it, it can she, be. She geese, wasn't fond of it. <laughs> geese are the geese are the big problem. There's there's geese are really aggressive. Yes, I they mess, are. I wouldn't mess they, with them. And we've got hordes of them in the um, big pond. It's just a dent in the summer, but it's filled up with rain now. So. Um, it's full of geese, and I give them a wide berth. It's my—I I do trudge over, thinking it's my field. I shouldn't have to go around the edge, but you no, know, I wouldn't mess with them. Yeah, they—they—they they, they, they stop off in cities and suburbs too, and they invariably hang out on both sides of whatever sidewalk I have to take to get into the building. Yeah. So I'm going through this Canadian goose gauntlet of these vicious hissing <laughs> creatures who would really horrible eat my eyeballs if I let them. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, and people who love them will say, oh, they're just, I, said, I don't want an explanation. It's like people who love snakes say that rattlesnakes are more scared of me than I am of them. And I think, I'm sorry, but every rattlesnake I have ever seen in my life has been coming towards me rattling. I have never seen a rattlesnake do anything else, which probably means I've seen lots that I've just walked past and they're sleeping. But I've seen too many of them getting quite aggressive for what seems to me no reason whatsoever i'm not a fan yeah no i'm not either i mean uh-huh. the difference is you're not gonna bite the snake the snake will bite you no but i have killed them with a shovel i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry if you get letters now but i've got to, got little two little cats when we moved here who didn't know from snakes because they were Scottish and <laughs> say, I'm sorry, I'm not, <laughs> you know, rattlesnakes and black widows. I don't kill many of God's creatures, but rattlesnakes and black widows. I mean, come on, anything with anything that could kill me. I think not if I see you first. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that that's fair. Sound that's, awful. No, that's self-defense. I mean, it's, you know, if, you're, if you're killing yeah. like butterflies and robins, but you know, something that will literally Absolutely poison you to not. death, that's, that's no. self-defense. So. No. Not butterflies. No, not butterflies. I feel bad for even chasing the heron and it can fly. But yeah, black, I mean, black widows, give me a break. Yeah. yeah do you get black, that's, that's you get black widows in Colorado? I don't think so, at least in, right. not in the suburbs and I'm not going looking for any. No, good. Yeah, no, now, I'm not what, um, now there, there are lots of like mountainous, more rural areas. I have no idea what they get out there because I don't go out there yeah um but i'm sure there's at least half a dozen things that they get that could probably kill you if you gave it a chance so mm, i would think so yeah different snakes yeah <laughs> um and it seems like it, at least one episode of every true crime podcast i listen to involves somebody going missing in the wilderness of, of someplace like colorado and never being seen again so i figured that i should probably like stay out of the wilderness yeah yeah, pro- I mean, it's proper wilderness there, isn't it? I mean, I don't like the idea that there are things here that can kill me. I'm not used to that. It's been a long time since there were bears in Scotland. I just doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> sometimes I do think, oh, where am I? This isn't right. It's very nice. It's usually fine. <laughs> I've never actually seen a bear. I've never, I'd love to see a bear. Maybe if I was in a car. I'd love to see a bear. When I was in Alaska, some kind of would wander 
through the hospital campus. We fortunately were in our offices, oh. so it was okay. We could look out the window because um, right. you don't really want Aww. to see them without metal or stone or something between you. No, I want to see <laughs> one. I don't want to meet one. I don't want to yeah. meet one. I want to see one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was it was it was fun from you know, the safety of the building. Moose too. They were, they're fun to see from far away until you see one walk next to your, uh, what I think I had a Kia and this was a baby moose who was literally <laughs> this larger than my car. Um, yeah, so I decided huge, that looking at them through the window was probably the, the best bet with those because mm. they can be kind of not nice as well. <laughs> they don't look friendly. I mean, that's a shame. They just got rest in bitch face, maybe, but they don't they don't look as if they're going to do you any favors, do they? Yeah, no, they're, they're not. They're they're definitely not as warm and fuzzy as Bullwinkle would have you think mm. um, they, they will. Um, yeah. They, now, if you leave them, I mean, they're happy if you leave them alone and let them and, you know, if you just let them eat your flowers and deal with it. Um, but if, if you mess with one, you will probably not win. <laughs> mm. I didn't know that. I knew about I knew about bears. To you know, to just don't get into it with a bear. Yeah, don't get into it with actually just don't get into it with any large wild animal. Um, it's probably a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Very extremely. Even coyotes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think coyotes would do you any harm, but they're just I think I've just watched too many horror things with wolves in, and coyotes are just slightly too similar to wolves. And because they're in packs, they're all, would always slightly freak me out. Yeah. There coyotes. A lot of people notice small pets go missing around coyotes. So I will go ahead and put them in the category of things you should stay away from. Yes. Um, for if it'll, sure. if it'll yeah. eat fluffy, it's not that nice. <laughs> yeah. We haven't, we, um, I can hear them here. I've never, I don't see them. They don't come down here, but I, I hear them. And they do sound slightly um, threatening in the night. I suppose I don't know what I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is they're doing. I understand what birds are doing when they sing. Um, I understand, you know, what animals are doing when they call. You know, when when a whole load of coyotes start yipping and yowling. I mean, I could Google it, I suppose, but I think it's unsettling because you don't quite. I'm not quite sure what it is. <laughs> I'm convinced they're plotting. Um, they're they're plotting something. Mm. Yeah, I think they sound as if they're celebrating. I think that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> celebrating what? And we will all be celebrating. Speaking of celebrating, I I I, I managed to tie it back into the book somehow. <laughs> we'll be celebrating the release of the Mirror Dance on December seventh, right? Yes, uh, in, in the US, um, and that's just in time for Christmas. Uh, uh, gift giving or Boxing Day gift giving or Epiphany <laughs> gift giving, any of those gift giving occasions, books make great gifts. Uh, and there's there's a, a, a tradition actually of um, I shouldn't try and pronounce it because it's I think Norwegian or something Yule book or something or other, a tradition of giving oh, yeah. books for for Christmas or the Christmas season and um, and there's also a tradition of books, especially mysteries, set at Christmas. I'm I'm reading a an anthology edited by Martin Edwards of um, Christmas murder mysteries. Oh um, yeah, I love a Christmas mystery. <laughs> I, so I love a Christmas mystery. But what makes them so much fun? I mean, why 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 do you think people love Christmas mysteries? I think, as so many things, it's the legacy of Dame Agatha Christie because she did such good 
um, closed circle. You know, everybody gathers for Christmas. Nobody wants to be there. You know, it's just such a, a cosy, not in the specific sense that we use it, but it's just such a comforting tradition. Uh, the Christmas, the Christmas gathering that goes horribly wrong. Yeah. And, and probably some of us are probably secretly um, imagining some of the relatives that we wish we saw less than once a year. Uh, mm-hmm. some of the, uh, the characters in some of those uh, gone horribly wrong stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a wonderful play. Uh, is it? Oh, my goodness. I wish I hadn't started this because I can't remember it. Alan Akeborn. There you go. Alan Akeborn does a wonderful. There's no murder in it, but God knows how. Uh, family gathering <laughs> called season's greetings i think if that ever if that pops up on netflix or britbox or acorn or anywhere uh this christmas season i would strongly advise everyone to watch it it's fantastic i'm so bad at promotion i'm now promoting someone there's not even a book it's certainly not my book it's alan acorn's play um season's greetings anyway not to worry <laughs> yes indeed thank you alexia (laughs) we'd make a perfect christmas gift it's a beautiful jacket that's um red and green uh accents on the jacket so it looks very christmasy dandy is wearing a belter of a coat um on this book and it is set in the middle of summer um but it's got a puppet show in it so it feels quite seasonal to me so a puppet show with um um murderous scary puppets yes is there (laughs) any other kind and if you're if you're cold, if you read a book set in August, it may make you feel warm as you're checking yeah, out your shoulder. Not, not a book set in Scotland in August. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, <laughs> but puppets. Read it. Read it for the uh, read it for the puppet murders. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and uh, where can readers uh, buy a copy uh, to read it? It is all over the place and pretty much everywhere. Uh, On my website, which is www.katrinamcpherson.com, if you go to the page for The Mirror Dance, I've got links for my favourite independence um, as well as the biggies right there. And um, other than your website, uh, is there anywhere else that uh, readers can connect with you on any social media or anything? Uh, Yes, I'm, I'm still not, don't scold me. I'm still not on TikTok. Well, I am. I've, I've got a TikTok account, but I don't use it yet. I'm on Twitter at Katrina McP because my name's too long. And I'm on Facebook. At, I've got a Facebook author page, Katrina McPherson, where I'm going to be once NaNoWriMo finishes and I don't have that daily check-in of word count. I think I'll keep posting my word count on my Facebook author page just because it it really, it, I think public shaming really works for me. Something about me my personality at work so if I know I'm going to have to write down how many words I've written in a day that'll make me write well I've, I've kept you away from your from your word count today uh, so uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me thank you no I've done it I've already done it I've written 2,000 words today so oh well, congratulations thank you very much it's been lovely to talk to you about food and books it's it's, it's always lovely to talk to you because you have the best stories um, of ever, honest. Well, oh, thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind. Thanks, Alexia. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Katrina McPherson, author of The Mirror Dance, a Dandy Gilver mystery. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. 
part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye.